Uh, if you could, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. Please do so. And turn to James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. We are preaching through the book of James and teaching through the book of James. A series that is called Developing a Mature Faith. Developing a Mature Faith. For those of you who have been following us, my prayer is uh, not only will you just follow me on Sunday morning as we go through it, but as you go throughout the week and you have some, some time, some free time, and you're not away from the other things that you may be studying or reading, that you'll pick up your Bible and read the section that's coming up Amen. so that you can uh, already have in your heart and mind uh, pretty much what the Lord is saying. Amen. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. When you get there, say, got it? Amen. If you're not there, say wait. We will wait for you. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We will wait for you. Amen. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. The precious, authentic, inerrant, sufficient, and powerful word of God reads, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be an enemy of God, I'm sorry, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Today, we want to title uh, this passage, How Quarrels and Fights Manifest. How Quarrels and Fights Manifest. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Father, we thank you for this time, Father God, to open up this truth, this word of truth, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be not only hearers today, but doers of your word. I beg, Father God, that you would help us, Father God, to put away all rampant wickedness, Father God, and receive with meekness the implanted word. I beg, Father God, that you would help us, Father God, to, to not be quarrelsome, Lord, to, to be humble, Father God, to be like you want us to be, Father God, uh, in the image of your Son, Father God. I pray, Lord, that you will give us the grace to be 
good listeners, that you will give me the grace, Father God, to preach your word, not to impress, but to express the beauty of your, your word, Father. Speak, Lord. Illuminate this word, Father. Feed your sheep, Father. For only you truly can, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I had a friend who did what most of us did with our other siblings, and that is argue. He had a younger brother. They were next-door neighbors to me. I always hung out with them, and they were constantly at each other's throat. Day after day, time after time, they would just find stuff to argue about. I mean, we couldn't do anything with them without them fighting. And finally, one day, the older brother came to me and said, I know how I'm going to shut them up. He says, I'm going to study the art of arguing. And I remember he went to the library and he got a book that was about how to win an argument. And he studied this book chapter by chapter, line by line. And I just remember when we would be hanging out, he would just be telling me different points about how to win an argument, how to win a fight. He was so serious about making the point to his brother <laughs> that he knew what he was talking about whenever he was talking about something. You know, I'm glad that that's not the approach that James takes here in James chapter 4. James is not so much concerned with us winning an argument or winning a fight as much as he is concerned with showing us what is truly happening when we are fighting with other people. James here does not give us his perspectives of fights and arguments. James gives us God's perspective. For God is the author of the Bible. And he is giving us a, a, a viewpoint that we can find from human or secular wisdom. He is telling us the truth behind quarrels, fights, and wars. I have spent quite a bit of time in preparing this message, praying for you. I've spent quite a bit of time praying for the husbands and wives who are getting ready to hear God's perspective of how quarrels and arguments manifest. Because I, I recognize that one place that they manifest in a lot of times, uh, in a lot of different ways, is in marriage. And there is someone here today who is sitting, and, and at the moment we started talking about the subject, that think, you just started thinking about your marriage and, and how you and your spouse is constantly arguing, constantly quarreling, constantly fighting. And some of you may have even threw up your hands and said, you know what? We're just not going to ever get along. It's no way that we're going to get along or this person doesn't understand me. I am praying today that you will see God's perspective behind quarrels and fights. I'm praying for the person who is constantly quarreling with their siblings, constantly fighting with their siblings, constantly trying to use their words to, to hurt their siblings or or maybe for the person who hasn't spoken to a sibling in, in a couple of months or a couple of years or a couple of days because of a quarrel or fight. I have and I am praying that God's word will impact your heart. I'm praying for those of you who had lifelong friends and you were close to someone, but 
They said something to you that hurt you or you said something to them that hurt them and that your relationship has no longer been the same. I'm praying for each of us, for you single parents who are trying to raise a child with the other parent not being present in the home and and you're having a hard time gelling with that person and when you talk to each other about that child's needs, you, you always end up quarreling and fighting. I'm praying that you would see that God has hope and God has help for us. James tells us in this text the cause of quarrels and fights. When we look at verse 1 and we look at verse 4, he's very clear about what causes fights. And in fact, he starts off with the question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I want you to notice something real quick. I want you to notice that it's quarrels. It's in the plural and it's fights. It's in the plural. To quarrel means to have a little dispute. To fight, literally in Greek, it means to make war or to declare a state of war. What causes you to have constant disputes with one another? What causes you to declare a state of war among you? He says, why is there fights and quarrels? Among you. Among you. Who is among you? Well, James is writing in the context of a church. He's writing to the ecclesia, to the called out ones, to the ones who are constantly gathering together to worship. And he's saying to the church, what is causing you all to bicker, to fight, to to pull one another apart with your words? Isn't that interesting? That James is writing to a church and asking them, why are they fighting? You know, some people are turned off by the church. I was just talking to a young gentleman as I was sharing Christ with him uh, this past week, and he just began to vent to me about how the church is just a turnoff, how people in the church are no better than people in the world, how we gather and how we fight uh, one another. He was very discouraged and trying to, to understand where this fits in. And perhaps there's someone out there today, you're trying to understand the, the meaning and the importance of the church, and you're looking at the church today and saying, it doesn't seem like churches are really making an impact, and it seems like they're fighting with one another. Well, I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage you with three things. The first thing I want to encourage you with is this. Jesus made a promise in his word. He was talking to Peter. He was talking to the rest of the apostles, and he made a promise. And the promise that he made, he says, upon this rock. What is the rock? The rock was the confession of the disciples. The disciples, Peter specifically, just called out and said, and said that Jesus Christ was Lord. Upon this rock, upon that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, he says, I will build my church. Okay? I will build my church. Number one is Christ's church. Number two, Christ is the one that's building it. But then he goes on and says, and the gates of hell, of Hades, he said, it will not prevail against it. I don't care how it looks from the outside. The church is not failing. (laughs) The church is running according to the sovereign will of God. The true church will never fail. The second thing that I want to point out about this is that the reason why you shouldn't be discouraged is because ever since the establishment of the church, the church has had problems. And the reason why the church has had problems is because the church is full of broken people, sinful people. We all are sinful from the pulpit to the back door. Nobody in the church is perfect. 
And wherever there are imperfect people, there will be problems. Now, that is not an excuse to act a fool. <laughs> but it's the truth. We are sinners that are saved by grace. But the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is, is that we are repentant sinners. A Christian, when we see our faults and our failures, we cry out to God to have mercy and we seek to change and to move on. In fact, even as we look at the, the New Testament, we see that the church of Corinth was having problems with quarrels and problems with fight. They were competing with one another, doing public worship, arguing about who was going to speak and who was going to prophesy. In fact, they had a case in which it went to court where two members of the church possibly were before the court trying to sue each other. We see the same thing in the church at Galatia. In the book of Galatians, Paul asked them, and he, he rebuked them for biting and devouring one another. Man, I'm not sure if Mike Tyson was a member of that church or what. We even see in the beloved church of Philippi, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, that Paul is writing this beautiful church, this beautiful letter to this church, encouraging this church, but he also takes the time to address two women of the church who are constantly quarreling and going at each other. The book of Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, Paul uses a whole chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and he is admonishing the church to remember their call to be unified. Do not be discouraged, do not be discouraged at the state of, some, of, of church, of the, the global church, amen? The global church is moving right along. We are not perfect people, amen? We shouldn't be satisfied with quarrels and fights, and that's why James is writing this. But the third reason why we shouldn't be discouraged is, is simply because God is revealing in the midst of quarrels and fights those who are truly his and those who are not. Jesus talked about how he will separate the wheat from the tares, which means just because we all gather together on Sunday morning and just before, because somebody's name is on the church roll, it does not mean that they are a Christian. Just like a bicycle, a bicycle inside a garage does not make the bicycle an automobile. A person inside a church or whose name is on a church roll does not make that person a Christian. In fact, Paul said that there are factions, there are fights among us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in order to reveal those who are truly with Christ and those who are not. James asks the question, what causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? Why are there fights in our households? Why is there quarrels among Christian families and, and husbands and wives? What would be your response to that? If I was to ask you, why are you fighting with your spouse? Why are you fighting constantly with your adult child? Why are you fighting with your coworker? You say, well, I'm not fighting with anyone. If I was to ask you about your last fight, why did you fight? What would be your response? Many of us, for most of us, the first thing we would do is we will point out what that person did or how that person made us feel. 
The reason why I told him off is because I feel like he wasn't appreciating me. The reason why we argued is because he or she never understands me. The reason why we're at odds is because we don't view the world the same way. I told him off because he's lazy. He's always on the couch. I told her off because she's lazy. <laughs> she's always sleeping in the bed. <laughs> but you know, James says that the issue is a lot deeper than these things that we like to throw out. James says that the problem behind fights and quarrels is a lot darker than we could ever imagine. James doesn't even give an overview of different situations. He gives a general truth that I believe is, is true, a truth that I believe is true in every situation. Look at James' answer. What causes quarrels? What causes fights? He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What causes fights and what, what causes quarrels is as simply is that there are, are passions inside of us that are at war. Inside of us, he says, there is World War Me. Inside of us, there is something that is going on that is causing us to want to harm other people or to speak loudly to someone if they do not get our perspective. In fact, this word passions in Greek is the word, you get the word hedonon. It's where we get the word hedonism from. To be hedonistic is a philosophy that says that man's chief end or man, the, our purpose as mankind is simply to seek the greatest pleasure that we can find. So Paul is saying what is causing you to fight is, is that you have hedonistic <laughs> passions going on before you. You are seeking your greatest pleasure. When we fight with our spouse, when we fight with our siblings, when we fight with people, what's really going on is that deep side, inside of our soul, we want something. And we want it so bad that we are willing to make the other person hurt or suffer. It's the BT Express theology. Whatever it is, do it. Do it till you're satisfied. That's what's going on in our hearts. Whatever the cost, I want to be pleased. Whatever the cost, I want to be satisfied. I want to be satisfied. Reflect for a moment on the last time that you argued with someone. The last time you had a dispute. And really think about it. If we're honest with ourselves, it really came down to, at the end of the day, we want it to be right. We want it to be acknowledged. We want it to be in control. I said we. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me too. Amen. When we quarrel, when we fight, when we declare a state of war with another person, it's because we want what we want. There are passions. In fact, 
this goes along with what James has just got through from talking about the difference between human wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And we see that in James chapter uh, 3, verses 14 through verse 16, James basically lays out to us that heavenly wisdom is built upon a selfish ambition. I'm sorry, uh, earthly wisdom, human wisdom is built upon a selfish ambition. It's built upon jealousy. And wherever it is that he says there will be disorder and there will be vile practice. And behind human wisdom, James says, is Satan. Paul said it this way, that inside of me, he said, there's two of me. (laughs) He says that the flesh is constantly at war with the spirit. He says that when I want to do what's right, I can't because evil is ever beside me. Inside each of our hearts there is for Christians, the spirit of God is at war with our fleshly or carnal nature is at war with our sin nature, the nature that was imputed upon us by by Adam. And it's constantly that old man is constantly fighting with that that new man. Constantly at war. So when we sin, when we verbally abuse someone, it is because our desires are out of control. James chapter 1, verse 14, James says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully Grown, it gives birth to death. So James has already laid the foundation. He says that behind every sin, there is a desire. The desire may not necessarily be sinful when it begins, but if it is not controlled, if we do not put it under submission and put it in the context of of what the word of God teaches, it can become sinful and it can lead us into sin. It's the same way with our passions. What we desire and what we want may not necessarily be sinful. You wanting a a, a clean house as a spouse may not be sinful. You wanting your husband to pick up his wet rag off of the bed when he drives, it may not be sinful. But it becomes sinful when we allow that to get us to a point of attacking them and declaring war. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says these words, beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? It is our inflamed passions, our sinful passions. Our sinful passions. The next thing that James shows us within this same reason that it's caused, he says that there's something even behind our passions. There's something that's allowing our passions to be built up to the point of quarreling and fighting. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And we'll go back up to verse 2 and verse 3 in just a moment. But James shows us what helps our passions to be inflamed, what helps our passions to be out of control. And he says that what gets our passions to the point of being out of control is worldliness, worldliness. He says that the reason that we tear each other apart, the reason 
Galatians, uh, that the Galatians are biting and devouring one another. The reason that the women at Philippi are fighting against one another. The reason why the church of Corinth is experiencing disunity is because the people who are involved in in this war are involved still in the world. He says that worldliness is behind our sinful passions. What do you mean? Well, John tells us these words in 1 John chapter 5 as he helps us to understand what worldliness is. 1 John, I'm sorry, chapter 2, John says these words. He says, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. James shows us exactly what worldliness is. Worldliness is us keeping our hand <laughs> or our, uh, a foot still connected to the things that, that are valued in this world, which is, as John MacArthur says, which is self-promotion, which is self-glory, which is self-fulfillment, which is self-indulgence or self-satisfaction. Behind every argument, behind every fight, every argument and every fight when two people are clashing, there is worldliness. There is selfishness. And I'm saying this for the husbands, and I'm saying this for the wives, and I'm saying this for the singles, and I'm saying this for the brothers, I'm saying this for the sisters, so that the next time that we feel tempted to tear someone down with our words and to argue with someone, that we would remember what James says. Our problem is deeper than we think. Our problem is our sin nature, it's our passions, and our passions are being controlled by what we feed them. Many of us, we argue and we fight so much about little things because those little things to us are big things because all we have done is feed ourselves with a message that this little thing is a big thing. Let me break it down for you. The last time I got upset and just wanted to start a quarrel, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to tell you how little it was. All right? I was taking my wife out on a date. I had my outfit laid out. I still like to look good for the wife, you know. Because <laughs> I know if she's not looking at me, amen, Satan's going to be trying to tempt her to look at somebody, amen. <laughs> so I had it all day. I was thinking about my outfit. I said, I'm about to, ooh, tonight. I'm sure enough going to impress the wife. So I had it all laid out. I had a shirt, and I had just bought these cufflinks. And the cufflinks kind of pulled the whole outfit together. You know, it's the details, brothers, it's the details. And I got home, and I couldn't find one of the cufflinks. So I'm searching everywhere. I'm saying, where is this cufflink? I'm under the bed. I'm over here. I'm doing this. I'm just searching for this cufflink. 
To the point my wife says, babe, what you looking for? She starts searching for the cufflink. Now I'm just mad. I'm mad that she's happy, she's all together, and I'm not. <laughs> and I'm just frustrated. And I just looked, and, and as the time went on, I had to change my outfit, and then I went to find another pair of cufflinks, couldn't find one of the other pair. I'm furious. And she's just walking around smiling. And now I just feel tempted just to start picking at her. <laughs> what is behind? What was behind this? It was this desire for self-glory, this desire for self-praise for my wife. This desire so bad to, to please her that at the end of the day, I was going to end up harming her with my words. And as I was walking around, I thought about the words of James. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? Is it not your hedonistic passions? And many of us, we fight with our spouses over silly stuff, over dumb stuff. That cufflink in relation to eternity and pleasing God means absolutely nothing. It probably meant absolutely nothing to her. The only reason she cared about the cufflink is because I cared about the cufflink. I could have been looking for a ballpoint pen. <laughs> she would have helped me look because she cared about me. And many times we get ourselves into these big fusses, these big fights over silly stuff. And look at what James says about this. James says, you adulterous people. <laughs> you adulterous people. The person who is being fumed or who's being pushed by the hedonistic passions, the person who's constantly warring and fighting and quarreling, he says, you're committing adultery. To commit adultery means to, is when someone steps outside of the marriage covenant and, and lust or fulfills their lust with another person. And God is saying that when we are operating in worldliness, when we are operating in the pride of life, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, when we are operating according to the human wisdom of this world, when we care about the things of this world more than the things of God, God is saying that we are committing adultery. Strong language here by James. Language that is similar to the language that the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah uses. When we argue, when we quarrel, may we stop and think about how we are committing adultery against God. We often find ourselves cheating on God with things of the world. God is married to us. He's in covenant, so to speak, with us. That is the cause of quarrels and fights. Let's look at the consequence of quarrels and fights. Let's look at the consequence of quarrels and fights. The first consequence of quarrels and fights is found in verse 4, and we just looked at it a little bit. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? First consequence of quarrels and fights is, is that God is displeased. God is displeased. James calls us adulterers, and then he says that when we are 
in love with the world, that we are in enmity with God. Enmity means strife or hatred with God. Hatred with God. He says God is displeased when we're fighting with one another. And the person who is in love with the world, the person who is in love with the message of the world, the person who is clinging on to the things of this world, is a person who ultimately is fulfilling their selfish desires, who ultimately will fight over their desires not being met, but who is ultimately at odds with God. You know, I don't want to be the enemy of anyone except Satan. I don't. I want to be Satan's enemy. I want to make Satan so mad. And I'm not scared either because I know that my God is the God that's going to keep me. People walking around scared of Satan. I'm not scared of Satan. Satan can only do, number one, what God allows him to do, and number two, what we allow him to do. Walking around scared of what Satan might do, rather than trusting in what God will do. (laughs) The only enemy I want is Satan. But sometimes we make enemies with people for doing what's right. That's fine. The last person that I want to be an enemy to is God. Last person. God has been too good. He's too long-suffering. He's too gentle. He's too kind. He's too giving for me to want to be his enemy. He gave his son in order that I could have life. He allowed his son to experience his wrath in order that I could have a relationship with him. He gives me new grace and new mercy every day. He gave me a voice so that I can praise him, hands that I can lift and work. He's given me breath in order that I can live with purpose. The last thing that I want to do is have God angry with me. And yet the word of God says that when we allow this world to be our main influence rather than God, that God is angry with us, that there is enmity between us. I think that the world needs to hear this message. I think that people need to hear the truth. We baby people too much. We say, you know, God loves you. And they're just living any kind of way. And it's true that God does have a general love for the world, for God so loved the world. that He. But it's also true that God hates them. Psalms 5 and 5, God hates all evildoers. God is so divine, he's so great, that he's the only one who is able to both love someone and hate them at the same time and be justified in doing it. And many of us in the church, many of us whom God has saved, we're still flirting with the world. Is God not good enough for you? Is the creator of the universe, the one who desires you, not good enough to be in a a relationship with him that is hot, not cold or lukewarm? And the reason why we fight The more we fight, the more we argue, the more we quarrel, the farther away we are from God. The less we understand the gospel. Not only is God displeased, but people are hurt. People are hurt. Look at verse 2. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. 
you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You desire these hedonistic passions. You desire they're inflamed because of your worldliness. You desire and you do not have. So what do you do? You murder. You murder. Now, some people here, actually, they take a literal approach. They say that James actually means murder. Um, and they say that James is saying that that's actually what happens. I believe that that, that is, is partly true, that the end result of worldliness is murder, is death. But I also believe that James here is talking to, in the context of the church and that James has bathed himself in the Lord's words on the sermon, uh, uh, in Jesus' words, which was preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, we see that Jesus really gives us and shows us what real murder looks like. He says that murder really isn't just us physically killing someone, but, but murder is us being angry to the point that we call our brother or sister a fool, raka, or we insult them. Okay? So James is saying that because of our worldliness, we are willing to murder, we are willing to hurt people. We are willing to tear people down, and we know in James chapter 3, he spends a lot of time talking about the tongue, so he's back on the tongue again. Because we don't have what we want, our selfish desires, we will harm people. We get jealous, and we try to kill them. Think about this. This is God speaking. You know how I know it's God speaking because it's so deep. It just goes just, just past our little quarrels and fights, but it even goes to, to even our worldview. Why are there wars? There are wars because one nation wants something. They covet something. They covet a land. They covet, a, they covet power, right? The Gulf War. <coughs> All right, we want to go and to liberate this area because they need liberation. Well, why this area? What about China? What about Cuba? What about other nations? And we know that really what we want is the oil at an attainable cost so that we can continue our price of living. So what do we do? We call, we declare a state of war. And I'm not saying that it was wrong or it was right. I'm not getting into the, the just war theory or anything here. But I'm saying that when you look at war, war is a result of someone wanting something for themselves that they cannot have, so they murder can I go one more place? Look at abortion. Abortion. We need to speak about it. We, if we don't talk about it in the church, our, our young ones won't know. Abortion, two people come together, normally outside of the confines of marriage. I'm not talking about the 2% of cases in which someone is, is raped or something else happens. But 90% of the time is two people having hedonistic passions, not waiting for the covenant of marriage. They come together. They lie together. The woman finds out she's pregnant. And she murders the child. Why did she murder the child? Was it not? Selfish, or was it not her hedonistic passions? Normally it's because they don't want to experience the shame or they don't want to keep the child because it's such a big responsibility and they want to finish or go through the course of their lives. When you look at murder, 
when you look at quarrels, when you look at fights, it all comes back to one thing. Passions. Next, James says, our prayers are hindered. Consequence of quarrels and fights, God is displeased, people are hurt, and our prayers are hindered. He says, you ask and you do not Receive. I'm going to go up a little bit in verse 2. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. James says that the reason that you are at war with people is because your passions are out of control. And the real reason why is because simply the very thing that you want at the very base level you could possibly have if you would just ask God for it. The things that you want out of your husband, the thing that you want out of your wife, the thing that you want out of your coworker, you could have if you would just pray. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, and like the rivers of living water, he turns them any way he wills. God is in control of people's actions way more than we are. So you do not have, number one, because you do not pray. But the second reason he says that we do not have is because when we do pray, (laughs) we act wrongly to spend it on ourselves or our own passions. So James says that selfishness, it stifles prayers. The reason why we don't have what we are desiring is because the only reason we want it is for our own glory or our own selves. Now, parents, your child comes to you, says, Mom, Dad, I would like to take your car tonight to go out. And you say, okay. That's no problem. I told you if you want to go out, as long as you keep going. Yes, I will keep. Well, where, where are you going? Well, I am going to a party to get wasted. So wasted. But I promise I'm going to do my best to take care of your car. Most of you will say, get out of my room before I slap you. But yet, That's how many of our prayer life is. Lord, give me, give me a big house. Give me a big car. Give me a better job so that I can have better clothes, a bigger house, a a bigger job. And, And the thing is, is that God does not have a problem with blessing us, but we have to remember we are his children, and he's only going to give us as his children what he knows that we can handle. That's why the, 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 the proverb says, <laughs> uh, the prayer of, of, of the proverb writer, he says these words. He says, Lord, do not give me riches. Least, least my heart is tempted to leave you. But do not give me prov- poverty. Least I'm tempted to steal. <laughs> he says, God, give me what I can handle. Think about Hannah. In 1 Samuel, Hannah wants a son. She's barren. And that is a heavy burden. That's a heavy burden for, for anyone here today who is. That's a heavy burden. That was even a heavy burden for them in that society because children were really, really emphasized and seen as a blessing. And she does not have a child, and she's crying and, and praying for a child for a long amount of time. And she, she just wants a boy, and she doesn't get the boy. And finally, one day, she's at the altar praying and, and crying, and the priest comes by, and he, he sees Hannah praying, and he says to Hannah, Why, what, are, what have you been drinking? Why are you talking to yourself? She says, no, I'm praying before the Lord. I'm asking the Lord for a son. And finally, Hannah got to the place of praying God's will. 
And she said, Lord, if you would just give me a child, I would just give him back to you. I would give him back to you. I would allow him to be raised by a priest. I just want a child. See, God had a plan for Hannah's son. Hannah wanted a son. God wanted a prophet. God has a plan for your life. You may want wealth and riches. You may want this position. And God is not saying necessarily that I don't want you to have that position. But in whatever you have, I want you to glorify me. Let your motive be to make me known. Let your motive be to make me big, not to make yourself big or yourself known. See, to be a Christian means to no longer live for your own advantage, for your own passions, but to live for the passions or the advantage of God. Prayers are hindered. Today, we must pray. We must pray, Father God, teach me to pray your will. Teach me to desire your will. But in order to pray like Jesus died, kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, Lord, my kingdom go. Help me, Father, to desire your plan for my life. When we're not praying that prayer, we are susceptible to quarrels and to fights. The last thing that's not found in this passage, the last consequences of quarrels and fights that I do want to emphasize because I believe it's a major theme in the New Testament, especially when we see the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is making a great mention of it. He says that our our gospel witness is tainted. When we quarrel and when we fight, many times we taint our witness to others. Amen, lights. Touch somebody say, it's tight, but it's right. Amen. If we're going to grow, we got to get pruned. Amen. Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How many times we hear that and we think that Jesus is saying that you're no longer a Christian, but that's not what he's saying. For salt, he means that we are the influence of the earth. We are the ones that should be setting the pace for the earth. We are the ones that's keeping this earth from being totally depraved and from having uh, just the the worst set of, of, of wickedness that there can be. So let's take that word salt out and let's just put in the word uh, influencers. Amen. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its influence be restored? It is no longer good except anything to be thrown out and trampled on under people's feet. When we are constantly quarreling, when we are constantly fighting and bickering, when people that are not saved or when people who are babes in Christ look at us, husbands and wives, when they see our marriage, we lose the influence that we would have had to share the gospel with them. And Jesus is saying, that's hard to overcome. Christ, God, put marriage together in order that it would exemplify the relationship between Christ and his church. 
Oh, a Christian marriage should speak to the world and it should say to the world, the way that my husband loves me, taking on the form of a woman, the way that my husband loves me is the way that Christ loves the church, sacrificial. Sometimes it hurts him, (laughs) but he's willing to go out his way to please me to ensure my protection. The way that a a wife loves her husband and submits in reverence to her husband is is unto the Lord and the way that the church submits and and reverences Christ. Gospel is tainted. The last thing, last point, the cure for quarrels and fights is the cure for quarrels and fights. James goes on to say, Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The last point, the last thing that we want to look at is that the cure for quarrels and fights and the cure for quarrels and fights is two things. Number one is God's grace, and number two is our surrender. Number one is God's grace, and number two is our surrender. Okay? Now, before we get into God's grace and our surrender, I want to deal with verse 5, because as I read that, some of your Bibles read something entirely different, I'm sure, because this verse is, very, is, is, is difficult to translate in the Greek. And different translations have chosen, uh, to the best of of their wisdom, to translate it uh, in in one or two ways, okay? And the the difficulty is is really to see uh, what is the subject and what is the verb here in this text. The literal translation, the way that it would literally read in the Greek is this way, uh, but I'm going to read it in English. Or think you that vainly the scripture says to envy yearns the spirit, which, made, which was made to dwell in you, but he gives great grace, okay? And that's confusing, right? <laughs> but the way that it's set up with the subjects and the, with the verbs, it, it sounds that way. So different translations took it to me to, 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 to apply different ways. And either way, no matter how you, they interpret it to, to apply, it doesn't change the meaning of the passage, and it doesn't change what James is going to say next. So the NIV says this, or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely, okay? And what the NIV interpreters are, are, are believing that James is saying in the context of this is, is that the reason why we fight, the reason why we quarrel simply is because of our sinfulness. He's saying that inside of us, our spirit is constantly envying other things. Okay, so the subject of the sentence then is is us, okay? But as we look at the ESV translation, it chose to translate it, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, the difference between the NIV is that the NIV is focusing this verse and saying that it is uh, within us there is a war, what James has been saying. And the ESV is saying this, that the war 
uh, that the jealousy or that the envy that is being experienced is not just us having envy or jealousy in our hearts, but it's actually God having jealousy towards us. You with me? Okay. And I believe that that translation is, is the way in which I chose to translate it on behalf of the context of this, this message. And the reason I say that is because I believe that, that that's a big point. What James is saying here is, is that God, for those of us who are living in worldliness, who are constantly quarreling, who are constantly fighting, we must remember that God is ultimately, in Old Testament language, our husband. And that God has put his spirit on the inside of us, and his spirit is jealous when we partner with the things of the world. James is is going on uh, and, and really emphasizing the teaching of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 54, when Isaiah is telling the Israelites that God is married to you. And that God yearns jealousy, jealously over you because he, he has purchased you and because you are his wife. And that's what God is saying here through the text. God, he yearns for you. He is jealous for you. He, he wants you. He doesn't want you to be in one second with the world and out one second with the world. The Bible says that if you and if I, if we, he says, I either want you hot or I want you cold. And if you're neither hot or cold, you will be spit out of my mouth. Are we at all at the fact that God yearns for us? Are you at all at that fact God yearns for you? He's passionate about you. He he is pursuing you. He has pursued you. He has given you grace. He wants you to find life in him and life more abundantly. He is jealous at the fact that we would rather spend our time with the world, rather spend our time with Satan than spend our time with him. And the cure to worldliness, the cure to our sinful, selfish passion, it's grace. It's grace. It says that the Lord gives grace to the humble. It's grace, and it's also us surrendering our pride to him. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor. The cure to you not fighting with your husband, the cure to you not warring with your wife, is reflecting and remembering the grace that God has already given you, but even more so remembering that now that you are his, that God gives you double grace. When you fight off worldliness. Just yesterday I heard a woman explain grace so well. Caused me to take my illustration for grace out and throw it aside and and put that in. Amen. She was telling a story about her sons and how her sons were constant, how, how she told her sons that they couldn't fight with each other. So from a young age, she raised them not to hit each other, not to fight with one another. And one day, they were beating each other up and fighting. And she reminded them of what she told them. And then she forced them. She said, get in the car. And while she was in the car, she began to explain to them the difference between three words, the difference between justice, the difference between mercy, and the difference between grace. She said, justice is when a person gives you exactly what you deserve. 
Mercy is when you do something wrong and that person lets you off. Grace is when you do something wrong, you deserve justice, but that person rewards you instead. And as she was talking to her son, she pulled up to Chuck E. Cheese and she said, you deserve to be whooped. You deserve to be punished. But lo and behold, I'm going to allow you to experience grace. And instead of punishing them, she took them and allowed them to go to Chuck E. Cheese. And what I'm saying to you today is as Christians, we must remind ourselves daily that God gives us grace daily. He gives us grace moment after moment, day after day, time after time. May I remind us of what we deserve because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is excommunication from the presence of God. It's hell. But God gave us grace. He allowed his son to become sin for us. He took he who knew no sin and allowed him to become sin for all of us. And then he told us that now we can have not only life, but we can have life more abundantly. We can have life at its fullest effect, and life at its fullest effect is life without selfishness, without pride, with a true purpose to glorify the one who truly deserves glory and praise. When you argue with your spouse, (laughs) you may be giving them justice. But may May you remember that God is giving you grace. Will you give your spouse, will you give your sibling, will you give your co-worker, will you give your niece, your nephew, your friend that hurt you, will you give them grace? Will you take them to the spiritual Chuck E. Cheese and show them how much it is how liberating it is to live for Christ. Grace is the answer to quarrels, focusing on God's undeserved favor. So the proverb says, proverb says it just that way. Proverbs three thirty four: To the scornful he is scornful, but to the humble he gives grace. In order to be humble, we have to make ourselves low. In order to be humble, we have to give up our pride and our selfish pursuit. We have to give up our hedonistic passions, and we have to trade them in for his passions. And for the person who humbles themselves, for the person who is constantly reminding themselves that their lives is not their own, but it's Christ, God rewards us with more grace, with grace upon grace. And that's the type of that's what I want. I want grace upon grace. Well, people just look at you and they just say, you're just a grace case. I just can't understand why you're so blessed, why you're so happy, why you're not holding things against me, why when I speak negative to you, you speak positive to me, why when I try to pull you down, you try to pull me up. I want that time of grace that points to the one who was gracious to me. And the only way to do that is to fight daily and to remind ourselves, to remind ourselves of the awesomeness of God. 
The God who dispenses grace. And how should we respond? Look at the words that James uses for our response. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Amen. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How should we respond? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Give yourselves to God wholly. Come under his leadership. Resist the devil and he will flee. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Submit to the thinking of Christ. Resist the thinking of the world. Submit to the purpose of pleasing Christ. Resist the temptation to live to please self. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. See that? The way that we respond is by repenting. By humbling ourselves enough to repent today for quarreling and fighting, but also to be with a repentive spirit every day. To constantly come before God, as James uses his Old Testament language, and cleanse our hearts, cleanse our hands. The only way that we cleanse our hearts and cleanse our hands is if we are appreciative of the blood of Christ, which cleanses us. Be wretched and mourn and weep. When was the last time you wept? And what was it for? When was the last time you wept over your sin? The less I weep over my sin, the less my sin bothers me, is the more I've been indulging myself in the world. A lot of us, we've never wept over our sin because we never humbled ourselves under Jesus. Some of us, since we wept over our sin that initial time, we haven't wept since. Because we have not been humbling ourselves under the hand of Jesus. It's hard to weep of our sins when we pour ourselves and fill ourselves with the message of the world. It's hard to weep over our sins when we are constantly allowing our brains to be bombarded with sin through the television. It's hard to weep over our sin when our favorite song are written by sinners that don't care about their sin. It's hard to weep over our sin if we never take the time. Never take the time to be intimate with Christ, and the only time we spend with them is when we want something. It's hard to weep over our sin. It says, let your laughter be turned into mourning. And what is the result? Last point, the result, the conclusion of the person who weeps over their sin, of the person who mourns over their sin, of the person who doesn't want to be a quarreler or a fighter, the result, the conclusion is exaltation. It's exaltation. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. And that's what all of us want when we argue and when we fight. We want 
about exaltation. Men, we care about three things. Herschel York said these words yesterday at a seminar. He said we care about three things in the context of marriage. Love, uh, respect, sex, and a clean home. And most of the time when we're arguing or fighting, it's because one of those three things are missing. <laughs> we want exaltation. We want to be lifted up. <laughs> now, women, you're a lot more complex. My wife could probably help you a little more than me. Amen. <laughs> but you want what you want. You want expectation. You want the other person to see you as right. You want them to respect your intelligence, to respect your emotions, to respect your need, so we fight for it. And God says, if you just humble yourself, if you just come to me and, and give up your, your worldly passions and take upon my passions, if you just empty yourself out for my sake and say, Lord, all I want to do is know you and to be known by you and to please you, he says, I'm the one that's going to lift you up. And that's the story of the Bible. Think about Joseph and how he was thrown in a pit and how he humbled himself to the point of being slaughtered, taken into slavery and how he was put and, and, and treated miserably in jail because of a bogus case. Think about how God exalted him to the position of being second in command. Think about David and how he had Ten brothers that was more special than him, that looked better than him, that was of better age. And how the, the priest came looking for a king. And instead of looking at all these brothers, he said, there is one more in the house. And who was it? It was the ruddy shepherd boy, the young boy. God exalted him because of his humility. Think about Solomon. How when he received his kingdom and how it was a war and how his brother tried to take it from him, but how God exalted him. Then think about Jesus and how Jesus came lowly. How Jesus came to Nazareth. How Jesus came with one purpose and that was to please his father. And think about how God exalted him on a hill of Golgotha. And how Satan thought that he was triumphant. But little did he know that Jesus said, if I be lifted, I would draw all men into me. Think about how God allowed him to be humble to the point of being buried, but then raised him back up and allowed him to ascend unto the Father. Now think about your life, your passions, your desires. And I'm telling you that if your passions, your desires, are going to end with your glory, then you will not be exalted. Let God exalt you. There, close with this story, it was a woman heard about on the radio, which perhaps is the saddest story I've ever heard. Top 5% about far. There was a man, he was on the 36th floor of a building. Jumped off the building and he committed 
suicide, attempted to commit suicide. He fell through the back window of a car and miraculously, jumping from the 36th floor, he lived. Had two broken legs, seen as a miracle by all. They interviewed the owner of the car. And they said, ma'am, what do you have to say? She says, well, I'm quite upset. Why do you think she was upset? You think it's because he tried to kill himself by jumping off the 36th floor? No. She was upset because her window got broke. She went on record and said, I just want to ask him one question. It's not, why did you jump? She said, why did you pick my car? She said, I love my Dodge Charger. And the thought of having to be apart from it breaks my heart. She said, I would sue him, but I'm not. Because obviously, he has problems. I want to tell you something. That is a sad case of a woman's hedonistic passions controlling her heart. I want to tell you something else. That God is at no more odds with her than he is with the person in this room who thinks that their life is their own. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And Christians, the only thing that's keeping us from coming to dumb conclusions like her is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if we're not careful to mourn over our sin, one day in the sight of others, we can be seen just as foolish. This time, I'd like you to stand to your feet as we close in prayer. We're closing today's service with this prayer. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you do not know Jesus Christ, I beg you 